chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. And let me remind you that this week in the life of Jesus is just full of significant events that everything we're going to be reading about, there's no purposeless thing that's going to be taking place. And a lot of times we miss the events that are taking place here because we sort of focus on Palm Sunday and then we focus on Easter Sunday and we forget that there was a whole lot of life and lessons that was lived in between those two times. Uh, Two weeks ago we saw the kingship of Jesus clearly being demonstrated when he went into Jerusalem. And then in verse 12 through 17 last week, we focused on the importance of worship in the life of God's people. And we saw his judgment against a form of worship that had no power. um, Or a form of religion that denies the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That they were gathering, but they really weren't worshiping. And so he brought judgment on that by the cleansing of the temple. And that whole theme of judgment of the nation of Israel continues on today. uh, And not only the immediate judgment, but the judgment that's to come. And what that all means for us. And it starts in Matthew 21, starting with verse 18. So go ahead and just read those verses, 18 through The focus of Jesus' ministry at this point is really acknowledging the division between the people who truly accepted him as the Messiah and then those who sort of rejected that or at, at best were just apathetic to it. And to see this division, to see this line And the division was occurring during the Passover week. It just becomes bigger and bigger, and you begin to see it. Um, But at the same time, Jesus is making it clear that this was not unexpected, and he's not surprised by it, that he fully anticipated this. Um, And so Jesus is going to explain, among other things in this passage, that one of the reasons that this was all taking place was because of the problem of hypocrisy. And it's pretty much the same problem that takes place today um, in all of life, but also in the church. And they, the problem was is that they looked on the outside as if the people loved God, but on the inside, they were living a completely different life. They were far from trusting him. In fact, there are two great themes in this passage. The one is Jesus' rebuke of religious hypocrisy, and then there are Jesus' words about faith 
that he teaches the disciples. So you have these two lessons going on at the same time. And in verse 18 and 19, you'll see here, Jesus addresses the issue of the hypocrisy. Um, he's Again, he's dealing with those who look like they're doing all the right things, but they're fruitless. And that's the picture of the fig tree. It looks like it has fruit, but in fact, it doesn't have fruit. Um, so it looks one way, but is another. Um, because hypocrisy looks one way on the outside, but another way on the inside. So in verses 18 and 19, Christ calls out hypocrisy. And he had already critiqued those who pretended to be godly in the worship, in the temple, and now he's doing about, doing the same thing. Um, and both of these acts, the cleaning of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, are signs of his sovereign authority over everything. It's just a sign of his sovereign authority. Now the Jews believed that their king would come and be a military leader. He would overthrow the Roman government. He'd be a socioeconomic leader. He would fix the social problems of their culture. He would fix the economic problems of their culture. Um, that he would get rid of all the bondage and that'd bring about the prosperity that they felt was promised in the Old Testament. Now, you think about that, and isn't that what Christians do today? Well, if we just elect the right person, we'll have the social order will be taken care of. If we elect the right person, the economic order will be taken care of. And sometimes we look for outward things to solve an inward problem. And it is not just through elections, but it is through transformation. It's through revival. It's through prayer that these things take place. But instead of attacking Rome, he didn't come in. He attacked Judaism. Instead of becoming a conqueror, he was a confronter. Instead of be talking about revolution, he talked about righteousness. And instead of cleaning out the enemy, he cleaned out his own house. And, you know, sort of a little different perspective than what they were expecting. In fact, it went completely against everything that they had hoped for. Um, and so when he comes as the king, he does two things immediately. First cleanses the temple, second curses his tree, and they are monumental, monumentally significant things when it came to the life of Israel. And again, last week we saw the cleansing of the temple. Now you see the cursing of the tree in verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he was hungry. And when he saw a fig tree along the way, he came to it, found nothing on it, but leaves only. You compare this, mess, this, this verse to Mark, and Mark brings it over a two-day period of time. And Matthew just focuses on it happening, and it sounds like it's immediately. And if you put the two together, you get, you get a fuller message. But Matthew is always talking about the immediacy of things. And Mark sort of gives a more of a chronological time. But the important thing was is that the immediacy of us, this judgment happens immediately. 
The results of the judgment in Mark show up the next day. But the reality is, is that it happens immediately. Uh, so the fact that the, in Mark it's two days, the reality is, as soon as Jesus cursed the tree, it was dead. It had died immediately from his curse. They just didn't see it until the next day. And sometimes that's true with us, in the positive as well as the negative. We may pray for something, and immediately it happens. We don't see the results for a day. And the problem is, in God's time frame, a day is not like our day. But immediately it is answered. It is responded to. Again, the leaves are symbolic of, of Israel's religious activity. And their fruitlessness is equally symbolic of Israel. They have a form of godliness, but without power. So Jesus cleansed the temple and denounced their religion. Now he curses a fig tree and thus he denounces the nation and the way they've been acting. You see, fruit is always, always the indicator of a changed life. It's the indicator of salvation. It's the indicator of sanctification. It's the indicator of transformation. And if you look uh, in chapter 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, by their fruits you shall what? Anybody, if, if you remember... Two years ago when we did Matthew 7. What will you know by their fruits? You will know them. And what about John chapter 15 verse 5? It says, every branch that abides in me brings forth much fruit. Fruit is ever and always the manifestation of a godly life, of a transformed life. The fruit of the Spirit is up on the walls. And so that's what it represents. And you go to Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the four soils. And you'll find the good soil, and the good soil is seen as good soil because it does what? Produces fruit. Some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. But what it is doing is producing fruit. And so he's saying, here's the nation of Israel. I've given you my promises. I've given you everything. And, and you look like you have a form of godliness. You go through all the right motions, but you're fruitless. You're fruitless. It's a nation with a pretense of religion that yet is unsaved, unredeemed, lost, cut off from God. So on Monday morning, Jesus and the disciples left Bethany and they started making their way back to Jerusalem. Now on his way, Jesus spotted the fig tree. But it, and, and in Mark, you find out it's not fig season. And so, but if you checked um, on, the, on the snapshot, Lynn put a little link there so you could look under fig trees. And in the early season, there were figs, premature figs, but were still good to eat. And so if there were leaves, there was usually these figs. But on this tree, there was none. And so um, 
there was nothing to eat. So when Jesus saw this tree with all its foliage, it looked like it had fruit, but when he inspected it, though it looked fruitful, it looked promising, it in fact had no fruit whatsoever. Then Jesus does something that he's never done before. He curses his own creation. He's never done this before. Um, but he curses the tree. Uh, and that cursing of the tree becomes a model that pronounces judgment on religious hypocrites. Um, and again, the fig tree, full of leaves but no fruit, was just a striking example of the Jewish church when Jesus was on earth. Now the question is, is this same true of the church in the United States today? Is there a striking example um, because in the church of uh, the Jewish church at that time had no grace. It had no faith. No love. No humility. No spirituality. No real holiness. No willingness to receive Christ. Never was there a picture so literally fulfilled. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do I represent Christ? This week, or the last couple of weeks, I, I do a thing called Marketplace Ministry, where I go into a, built, a company and I just make myself present for an hour a week, every once a week. And I walk around this company, and one day, one person says, well, why do you do this? And I go, because on Sunday, people come to see me. And I don't know everything that's going on in their lives. And so I just wanted to get out into the world and be where people are. And so I did that. And she goes, well, how has it been for you? I go, it's been, it's been good. And then we just start talking a little bit, and she goes, well, you know, I love God, but God doesn't love me. And I go, how did you come up with that? Well, because I went to church, and I got kicked out of church. And I was told that God hated me. And I go, whoa. And I'm thinking of this, <laughs> you know. And I said, well, why did they tell you that? And she goes, because I'm gay. I go. And then she said, but I, but I love God. And I go, well, and I can honestly tell you that God loves you. She goes, well, nobody else has ever told me that. And I go, nobody's ever told you that God loves you? She goes, no. I go, well, God loves you. The Bible says that God loves you. She goes, well, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, it doesn't matter if you believe in it. God still loves you. And so, you know, we had a short conversation, and then I left. And then last Friday, they invited me. I'm back at the company, and she sought me out. And she goes, can I ask you a question? And I go, yeah. What does the Bible say about me? I go, well, the Bible says that God loves you. She goes, you know what I mean. And I go, what difference does it make? She goes, what do you mean, what difference does it make? You don't believe it. 
And she goes, yeah, but I'd still like to know. I go, well, let's sit down and talk. So we sat down and talked for 20 minutes about God's love for her. And the story she told me about her journey blew me away. Parents divorced when she was two. Mom moved away. Her dad remarried. Stepmom beat her on a regular basis and her other, the other kids in her family. And when her dad came home, he beat the stepmom. And then when she was seven or eight, between seven and eight, she was um, significantly abused uh, sexually by a friend of her dad's. And then raped when she was 20. And then became a female prostitute for other females. She's telling me the story. Oh, really, God? I said I wanted to get into the real world, but it's you know, but this is a this is a bit much. And yet, just sharing and just opening up her heart, and it broke my heart that why this woman in her, somewhere in her 30s, never had an opportunity to share those things before. Now, after all of that, and I prayed with, and I asked her, I said, can I pray with you? And she goes, please. So I prayed with her, shared with her, and then she goes, now, what does the Bible say about my lifestyle? And I go, it doesn't condone it. There's nothing I can share that says, that lifestyle is one that Christ affirms. But Christ affirms you. And what he wants is a relationship with you that enables that to transform you. And so she goes, can we talk again? And I go, absolutely. I'm not sure if I want to go out into the real world. Because I'm telling you, it's messy. And it's painful. And when you open up yourself to hear other people's stories, you, you can't help but have that kind of empathy. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying about the nation of Israel at this point. You have no compassion. You have no grace. You have no love. You're stuck with your own rules. You want to look good, but your, your life is completely the opposite on the inside. You're nothing but religious hypocrites. And I had to take a look at myself and say, are there times when I'm that religious hypocrite? So in this theme of Jesus' judgment against those who were hypocritical, those who look on the outside one way and on the inside another, it's not a new thing. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus at least three times addresses the problem of hypocrisy. He says, when you give alms, do it privately, so you don't look like you're something in front of others. He goes on to say, when you pray, you are not to pray as the hypocrites. And he says, and when you fast, do not do it as the hypocrites. See, all of those were signs 
of wanting to look good in front of other people, but not, but not revealing who they really were on the inside. Over and over and over, Jesus criticizes those who practice their religion for the main purpose of being esteemed by others instead of fellowship with God. So again, specifically, Jesus is criticizing Jerusalem here. Um, and Jesus is bringing a strong charge against his own people. But that same passage, that scriptures are meant for us. As individuals, as a part of the larger church, as a part of River Valley. Um, now I gotta say that one of the things that they were doing when they did these, uh, the focus groups, one of the people said there that they love the fact that River Valley is a classless church. And I I love that term, but what do you mean by it? He goes, because it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be loved and accepted at River Valley. It's not based on class. It's not based on socioeconomic status. It's not based on race. It's not based on history. It's not based on culture. It's the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, you can come to River Valley and feel loved by people. And that was one of the best compliments that I think I've ever heard. I just didn't know how to put that as a tagline on our website. A classless church for classless people. (laughs) Not sure how that flies, but... (laughs) Led by a classless pastor. Led by a classless pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. I'm glad there's not too many visitors here. (laughs) So Jesus brings a dire warning against them. That fake character is not going to get you anywhere. And the problem is, is that when we're hypocrites, it hides certain sins of the heart. It may not always hide the behaviors, but it hides sins of the heart. And the more and more you hide sins of the heart, the more difficult it is. And the more you justify not repenting. And so here's these sins of the heart because you're outwardly you're looking wonderful. You've gone to all the right Bible studies. You go to church. You do all the right things. But you, you carry this sin in the heart that is preventing you from loving, preventing you from forgiving, preventing you from experience the fullness of God's love. And because you don't repent of that, God can't change you. And so you get stuck. And so that hypocrisy is the worst form of torture for yourself. Um, Because it's in repenting of our sins confessing that we do have things to be ashamed of. We, confessing that we have been wrong in the sight of others and God. That the way of salva- that's the way of salvation for us when we finally acknowledge that I'm not what I look like. This is who I really am. And that doesn't mean you have to confess that to everybody. 
But it first starts with your relationship with Christ. Coming clean with Christ and letting him to forgive us. In short, the more concerned we are about our prestige rather than our character, the more in danger we are of losing everything. So is the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives? When you look up there, can you say, yeah. I need area. I need help in these areas. These are areas where I'm not showing love. I'm not showing kindness. That I'm being judging. And how do I allow Christ to transform me in that? Is the character of Christ something which we desire? Or is it something simply that we want to pretend we have so I feel good for a couple hours a week? Um, so the the passage is a warning about that but then you move to verses 21 and 22 and it's saying okay enough of that about Israel now I want to talk to you guys I want to talk to you because this next part is just about you so when the disciples saw it they marveled saying how did the fig tree wither at once and Jesus answered them truly I say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will see if you have faith. Now, I went to All Roberts University, and that verse was thrown around all the time for whatever anybody wanted. I want a new car. Well, if you have faith, it'll happen. <laughs> Does it matter what kind of car I want? Nope. You name it, you claim it, you got it. And, and then when it didn't happen... The good point was, well, obviously, you don't have enough faith. So you had a whole bunch of Christians walking around Tulsa, driving old cars, saying, <laughs> obviously, I have no faith. <laughs> you know? And that heathen just found an oil well. <laughs> you know? So, it, you know, it, and it was just so taken out of context. But one of the things, and, and I find it interesting, that the disciples fixated on when they, what they saw in the miracle. They, they didn't say, why? I mean, if Jesus went up and cursed that fig tree, I'd go, whoa, time out. Why did that happen? What was going on that Jesus got angry enough to curse a fig tree and to see it die? Because the fig tree hasn't done anything, and I know I have. Um, but they didn't ask that question. They asked, how? Which I just thought was a different question. How did you do that? That's like going to a magic show and saying, how did they figure that one out? How did, how did that happen? That was their curiosity. Um, but the miracle struck them with amazement. And so they ask. And he responds with, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will see if you have faith. Again, that's obvious. That's not literal. It's a picture of power. And I don't know if you know it or not. I did not know this. But in Jewish literature, there was a person called a rooter of mountains. Okay? So you could remove this mountain. 
if you had faith. But the rooter of mountain was a metaphor for a great spiritual leader. So in the Babylonian Talmud, and again, the, the, the major text for the Jewish people, for their history, for their law, for their teaching, out of that came this term, the rooter of mountains. In other words, people who could remove great obstacles, people who could solve great problems, people who could express great power. Rooting up mountains became a metaphor for dealing with difficulty, dealing with impossible situations that only through the power of God could that happen. And we're dealing with all kinds of problems and impossible situations. And instead of really trusting God to root those out, we still try to do a lot of this on a human perspective. So Jesus is saying, look, I want you to know that whatever is going on in your life, you have the power. And this power is available to you through faith. And if you would believe and not doubt, you can see God's power working in your life and working to resolve these issues and root these mountains out of the way. And I started thinking about that again because I think about how many times do I just get tired of my own ineffectiveness or ability or power to change things that I want to change. And then again, I wonder why the church in the United States seems so powerless in our culture. And I get tired of just life without power. And I hunger to see the hand of God move in such a way to see God at work. And it's right there. If you have faith and you do not doubt and you persevere in prayer. We've talked about the prayer ministry here. There's people that are praying right now. And we pray in the morning at before the service. And the importance of prayer for this church, the importance of prayer for our lives, the importance of prayer for the things that are going on. Because it's through that power we too can be known as rooters of mountains. Because we have God's power, not our own. We're not focusing on our power. So when I'm dealing with this lady and this company, I'm just praying that somehow God will use me to be a rooter of a mountain that is a barrier to her truly accepting and understanding what it means to accept Jesus Christ into her life and allow Christ to transform her and to transform her lifestyle. I can't do that on my own. There's no counseling that I would do that would ever solve that problem. Only Christ's love and forgiveness will do it. So he turns it into a lesson about prayer. Now faith is not faith in nothing, and faith is not faith in things that you think ought to be, and faith is not faith in your ideas or your plans or your dreams or your ambitions. Faith is placing your confidence in God. Faith is placing confidence in something that you know is true. It is believing God as he revealed himself. So if you have faith and you don't doubt, if you believe that God is able and will do what he says, he will do 
and then you can see it done. And again, how is that appropriated? Through prayer. Our faith is activated by petition, activated by prayer. And it is in prayer we ask, and it is in prayer we receive. Now, verse 22 really is a dynamic verse, folks, because if you understand what it means that it is the will of God, if you really understand that, then it just makes things better. Because if you believe that God wants what is best for you, if you believe he wants what is best for you, then you're going to eventually say, I want what God wants for me. It doesn't matter what I want. I want what God wants for me because I believe that God loves me better than I can love myself. God has a better plan for me than I have for myself. Um, we were talking in, at, at church, and I forget what the statement was, uh, when we were talking about, it's got it somewhere on email where God's writing your plan, so put down the pencil or something like that. And Phil, you have a statement like that. God's still writing your story. Don't try to steal the pencil. You know, and it's just such simple, but it is so true. So my job is not to figure out how God is going to do it. My job is to respond in faith and simple trust to the confident statement of verse 22. Because God loves me, I can trust him. So I don't know what burdens you have, what you bring to the table. But I do know this. Jesus is telling the disciples, if you really trusted me, then I will make you rooters of mountains. He wants to do the same thing with us. So that when we encounter people, we can truly show them who Christ is and what he looks like. And hopefully through that, they will come and we will be able to witness new birth in a person's life and to see a child grow up in Christ. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the challenge. I thank you for the judgment that is seen there. And how you confronted the hypocrisy. But at the same time, called us to be, called us with hope of what it means to truly have faith in you and to trust in you. And so, Father, I just ask that you continue to move in each one of our lives that we can experience the fullness of who you are and all that that means is my prayer in Christ's name. Amen.